UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Should be recording, and I can edit this out if I have to. It's always this is this software is so temperamental. Oh wait, okay. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have with me, uh, really, honestly, a really fascinating guest today. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Who I have with me is one of the world's most leading experts in fairies, fairy folklore, and um, Irish mythology. I have with me Morgan Daimler. Um, She uh, studies the old Irish mythological uh, beliefs, paganism, witchcraft, um, and it's intersected with today's popular and modern culture, following a path inspired by Irish fairy faith blended with neo-pagan witchcraft. Morgan teaches classes and workshops on Irish mythology and magical practices, fairies, and related subjects throughout the United States and internationally. She has contributed to multiple anthologies and magazines. Her website is moon-books.net, and her books are called A New Dictionary of Fairies, Fairy Craft, Following the Path of the Fairy Witchcraft, and Pagan Portals, Living Fairy. And I want to give her a big warm welcome to the show. Morgan, thank you for coming on. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I, I don't know if anybody's asked you this on an interview. Like, How did you like um, get interested in all this stuff? Like, um, Were you always into witchcraft or like what, what, uh, what sparked your interest in that and then specifically Irish mythology? Sure. So I was kind of raised a secular agnostic. I wasn't raised with any specific religious tradition. And when I was about 11, uh, a friend of mine had sort of casually gotten interested in witchcraft, as you do, I guess, at 11. Um, And she didn't end up staying with it. She kind of decided it wasn't for her, but she got me interested in it. And then as I was learning about it, it made a lot of sense to me. So I ended up sticking with it, clearly. Um, and then the fairy stuff, I mean, I, I grew up with a lot of those beliefs, um, you know, in my family, the Irish American diaspora. So there was a lot of that that sort of carried over um, from the older, you know, original Irish culture. And so when I was little and I would tell my parents things like, oh, you know, I see fairies and I want to build fairy houses and do all these sorts of things. So I was very little. Um, my parents were always just sort of like, okay. That's what you want to do. Um, and then as I got a little older, when I was in my teens, I really got interested in the folklore behind it and um, sort of the idea that other people also shared these beliefs, you know. And then the more I looked into it, the more I realized it's kind of a global thing. You know, any culture you go to, they have some sort of concept that is similar to what we would call fairies. I was wondering about that because I was wondering if it was because you hear about it mostly in like the Celtic lore that are usually like, but it's, it's a, it's a worldwide thing then. Yeah. So the term fairies is kind of specific to, like you were saying the the Celtic language countries, you know, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Isle of Man, Cornwall, the Northern parts of France. And also of course, like a lot of English, the word fairy is an English word, of course. Um, 
but every culture you can look at, you're going to have some sort of being that is similar to what we have, what we would call a fairy. So the same kind of concept that it's something that interacts with humans and is connected to humans, but sort of exists in another dimension or reality or plane. Um, you know, there's a lot of different terms that get used that is a being that is powerful that could potentially influence humans in different ways, particularly like health and luck and things like that, um, that, you know, can be either helpful or dangerous. You know, like if you have a whole checklist of how we would define what a fairy is, if you go to other cultures, you're going to find those same sorts of spirits. They just have different names. They call them something different, but very similar concept. Like the jinn in the Arabic traditions, right? Would that be yeah, one? That is a great example, yeah, because there's a, a lot of similarities there for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm so interested in like how people are able to interact with the fairies. I mean, do you do you think it's possible? Like, for example, like I've had very limited paranormal experiences, but I've always I, I always say this on my show. I grew up a Art Bell kid. You know what I mean? I'm 43 years old, and I grew up listening to Art Bell on Coast to Coast, and he oh, used yeah. to have on um, Evelyn Paglini, who is like a she called herself a strega witch, and I was like so enthralled you know what i mean i was like what's this and I, I guess like at that time it's like you said like you know like in your in your teens or 20s like i was in my 20s when art bell was on but i it, it still fascinated me the idea of witchcraft and then i guess i've always been like kind of fascinated with like fairy lore as well especially like when it relates to um like modern day accounts of like alien abduction which i think there are some similarities there like here's i don't know a lot i haven't read much celtic literature but i've heard this is, I know you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that like when people were taken by the fairies, supposedly in these cultures, that like they would be taken up by like what they would call a glen or a mist, you know, which we could maybe equate that to someone maybe being taken up in a craft. I, I don't know. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a really fascinating subject. Um, there is a surprising amount of crossover if you look at the stories. Um, for example, the the Irish gods, when, you know, the mythology when they arrived in Ireland, um, one version of the story is that they arrived in ships from the sky and landed on the top of this mountain. And then the, the whole island was covered in mist and darkness for like three days after they arrived. And obviously, you know, people interpret that in in different ways. Ship from, ships from the sky is kind of not that subtle. Um you know, so when we look at the stories, we do have things like that. We have um, folklore about lights moving that people have compared to uh, things that people see with UFOs. Um, abductions are very similar between fairies and what we have with UFO lore. Uh, missing time, um, disorientation, sometimes being offered food, um, a lot of times unpleasant things happening. Um, you know, again, if there's that checklist, like the fairy abduction versus alien abduction tends to be very similar um, checklist wise. Uh, there's sort of two real main schools of thought that I'm aware of. You know, you have a lot of ufologists who will kind of argue that the old fairy stories, the old fairy sightings, and the, you know, fairy abductions are actually aliens and UFOs and that the people just didn't have the context for that. So they said it was fairies. And then you have a certain group of people that are more like on the fairy folklore end of things that will argue that the modern UFOs and alien abduction experiences are just still fairies. But now that we have sci-fi and sort of that concept of aliens and spaceships, that is sort of the cultural context people bring to it. So that's how they explain the experiences. So you kind of have these two different points of view on it. Um, but yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of crossover. Um, there's some really good books by Joshua Cutchin that really specifically compare. Um, Thieves in the Night is a good one, and then Trojan Feast. Um, he compares, I believe, aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch. 
I like him. him. I've had him on my show. I, I like Josh. Yeah. He's a good guy. He, Josh he, is he's, awesome, yeah. he's a he's a brain too. He's a he's a really he's a really smart researcher. I love his research. Like he's a he's he's amazing. But let me ask you this. So do you think we're dealing with like it seems to me like that we might be dealing with separate entities? Like I think that there is like alternate realities or what we might call parallel dimensions or 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 something. There, I think these things are crossing over in our world from somewhere, like the UFOs, the cryptids, the fairies, um, w- whatever else comes into our reality that doesn't seem like it should be here. But I do feel like it does cross into our reality from time to time. I don't know much about the fairies. I don't know if people that I guess this would be where we get into like your book with like the path of fairy witchcraft. Like if like, can we talk about like possibly summoning these, witch these fairies and getting them to do our bidding or do they more have like a trickster element? Like, and sorry, I knew I hit with you with a lot there, but I was trying to, that's a lot of awesome stuff. Um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't encourage people to like summon them to try to get them to do things for you because that, that <laughs> probably won't end well um you know they they definitely fall more on that sort of trickster end of the scale um and they're they are kind of known like i said they can be helpful they can do positive things we have stories about that but they can also be very dangerous they can also um you know cause people a lot of problems so you know, when we're talking about things like the fairy witchcraft, um, which is sort of based in the idea that we have all of these historical records going back to the 1600s of witches who would interact with these beings and sort of be connected to these beings. But it usually kind of went one of two ways. Either the witch was sort of um, helping out the fairies, I guess we could say, like doing things that they needed done um, in the, the human world. Um, or you have these witches who sort of specialized in helping people deal with fairy mischief um, or, you know, more dangerous situations. So like we have a lot of stories in the older folklore of fairies stealing people. Um, changelings is sort of the, the common term for that. Um, sometimes babies, sometimes children, sometimes adults. And when that would happen, if, you know, a, a family thought that one of their people had been stolen and there was changeling, they would go to one of these sort of specialists to try to help get the person back, um, which a lot of times did not end well for anybody. But it's that sort of idea, that belief that, um, you know, these are people who, if you needed help because you were having problems with fairies, that's who you would go to. And then they would help you sort of figure out what to do. You know what? That's so strange that you say that because like this is doing another crossover. Uh, this is a, just a, a, an example of a crossover. I watched this um, this uh, episode of Dreamland. or I listened to it with um, Whitley Strieber, but he was interviewing this guy named Alan Lammers. Who uh, he he was like he was like in the in the like jungles of like out by Indian Indonesia somewhere like and he said there's this this place where like and he you know people would stay there and they would go like there he was trying to set up like a radio communications um, center there like this guy Alan Lammers right and he he was told by the locals that you like first of all when they go in the jungle to not wear anything but black and white. For some reason and then like he continued to tell the story and he said he was he was walking through the the jungle and he was bitten on the back of his leg but there was nothing around that he could they could tell then he found out deeper into the story that the guy that was bitten was wearing color which was strange and then on top of that like it turns out that these beings whatever they were 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 doing like kind of like you just said they were like taking people sometimes sometimes they would help people like sometimes they would they would be real real weird like sometimes they would like help someone so like if someone got stranded out in the forest or hurt or something they would actually nurse the person back to help then return them so the person would tell the story about these beings but then at the same time sometimes they would take people and not bring them back is this similar it's it's a fascinating story but like is this similar to the way the fairies act yeah, um, the color thing is is a little different, although fairies can be like that with specific colors. But outside of the color part, if you had told that story and not said where it had happened, 
um, or said, you know, oh, this is from wherever, England or, or Scotland or something, it, it would fit in with what you would expect to see sort of in that folklore in those places. Um, there's a lot of idea that they, they can be helpful, they can be dangerous, that they have sort of their own rules that they play by, and that when you're dealing with them or if they're around, like, you have to respect those rules. Um, so, like, with the colors, usually with the, the Celtic fairies, it's the color green. You're not supposed to wear it because the fairies sort of consider it their color. So if you wear green, sometimes that can cause them to... Um, hurt you or be upset with you. Um, whereas like red, there's some stories that say that they don't like red. So if you're wearing red, they'll sort of avoid that. So you hear stories about people who would like, um, tie, um, like red string on their cow's horns to protect the cows. Cause fairies would also mess with animals. Um, when I was growing up, it was a whole thing where as kids, you wanted to sleep in red flannel nightgowns and stuff because that protects you from fairies messing with you while you're sleeping, um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah, they, there's definitely a lot of rules that they have that we have to follow. There's a lot of kind of ways that we can play with that to protect ourselves. And definitely the idea that like there's certain places that belong to them and that you have to be respectful and not go to those places. Or if you go, you have to, while you're there, again, follow their rules, you know, don't do certain things or make sure you do do certain things so that you don't offend them, which sounds you, very similar to what you were saying. That's fascinating. Do, do, do you, would you say that you have have had, have you ever had a experience with the fairies or, um, or have you ever had a more like paranormal experiences in general that kind of, that like, that, that made you think that there was something to this? I would say so. Yeah. Um, I think I've had different experiences that I would consider to be paranormal. Sorry. Um, particularly with fairies, there's been, um, some things that I've had happen actually that I was with other people when they happened. So, you know, there's other people that share this story that were also witnesses to it. Um, I saw fairy hounds. So when we talk about fairies, Usually you say the word fairy and people picture this very specific kind of thing. Usually that sort of Disney Tinkerbell pixie kind of being. And really when we use the word fairy, it's it's more of a catch-all kind of term. It covers a bunch of different specific th kinds of things. Um, so most fairies, when you hear stories about them in like Ireland or Scotland, can look very human. Um, they're, you know four to five to six feet tall they could pass as human um, except they're clearly not they've got some some other things going on but we also have fairy animals so there's like fairy cats and horses and dogs and so i was with a friend of mine once um, in a small city near where i live and we saw two black fairy hounds um, and it was a very uncanny experience like we're in the city not in the middle of the city but you know we're still in the city and it's a fairly busy main road. Um, and all of a sudden it just got very quiet. All the traffic stopped, no cars were going by, everything got very kind of still, which is another thing that you'll, I've noticed a lot of these stories, like people will mention things like this, it got very quiet, everything got very still. And my friend and I, who were just sitting on the steps in front of the store talking, look over and we just see these two large black dogs walking down the sidewalk on the other side of the street just side by side, um, you know, no human with them, no one else to be seen. And we had kind of started joking about it a little bit. And my friend said something like, wouldn't it be funny if they crossed the street and came over to our side? And as soon as he said it, in perfect tandem, the two dogs turned and crossed the completely still and silent street to our side. And we kind of panicked and ran inside the store. Um, it's, it was actually my friend's store. So we ran inside and closed the door. Um, this is about twilight. And we looked back out because the, the door had a window and there was <laughs> nothing to be seen. There was no dogs, there was nothing. So we both were kind of confused because there was nowhere they could have gone in that amount of time. And so, you know, we waited maybe four or five seconds, nowhere, couldn't see them. 
So we finally go back out and we look and they're still walking perfectly side by side, but just past where we were, even though it was impossible, there was no way they could have gotten where they were. There's no way they could have gotten past us. The whole thing was just very strange. That's, that's so cool. Um, And that makes me think of like, what, like, okay, I wanted to bring this up with you. Like when, when I was in elementary school, because we're talking about Irish, like we're talking about fairies in general. And I know that can be worldwide, but a lot of times they're thought of as like Irish culture. And I know you specialize in Irish mythology. Like when I was a kid, they made us um, for elementary school. They had us watch like Darby O'Gill and the little people. Like they would, they would pack us. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Sean Connery. Yeah. Yeah. They would pack us in the, um, in the lunchroom, you know, and like, it would be like during like a holiday or something like, like, like the day before we would go on like, you know, Christmas break or, or whatever. And I had a um, music teacher, like who was, she was really cool. Like she had us watch. I remember that's where I got introduced to the movie labyrinth for the first time. And that was also where I got introduced to the movie um, Darby O'Gill and the little people. And what was interesting about that movie was like, I, I think like Disney movies were a lot cooler, like back when we were growing up, like it, they, there was, it seemed like they were more maybe psychedelic or more like, um, I don't know. It's hard to explain. There was like, did you, do you feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think um, when, if I look back at like the way the, the movies used to be, I think that they were a lot more hardcore. Um, you know, I, I think that there's things in children's movies that were made in like the, the eighties that um, you could not get away with today. Um, Cause it would, they would think it was too scary. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think of that movie Darby O'Gill and the little people as, as compared to like, like if you for what you can remember of it, do you, do you, do you, does it, does it, is that like a misappropriation of culture or like, or is it like them taking liberties or what would you say? I mean, it's most movies are going to be taking some liberties. Um, even the ones that I would recommend that I would say like are better or like good examples of folklore in a movie, they're still not going to be perfect. Um, you know, like Labyrinth, you mentioned, um, Labyrinth is actually a pretty good movie from a folklore point of view. Um, you know, it starts with the, the Goblin King stealing the baby, which as we've established is a thing that they do. Yeah. Um, and you know, the whole reason, at least one of the reasons that they say that fairies will steal babies and and children and stuff is to basically turn them into fairies to, you know, increase their numbers. And that's exactly what was happening in the movie. He was going to turn him into a little goblin. Um, and she had to go on that quest. And then pretty much everything that was happening in that movie was just very in line with folklore. The Goblin King was a shapeshifter, which we do see a lot in the folklore. Um, took the form of an owl. Uh, I love the scene where, where Hoggle shoots the fairy um, you know, and the fairy collapses and the girl runs over and picks the fairy up and the fairy bites her <laughs> and she gets all upset. It's good. Yeah. I thought fairies would just be nice and grant wishes and, you know, Hoggle's just like, it shows what you know. Um, and that's, that is all very true to like what we would expect in the actual folklore. Um, so I think Darby O'Gill and the little people is, is a little bit like that and that there's certain things in there that are accurate um the the leprechauns for example uh it's probably one of the better representations of those that you have in a movie um and then of course there's things that are are less <laughs> accurate um that are more just for the the plot of the movie um and of course i'm going to ignore sean connery's attempt at an irish accent because that's that's a whole other thing <laughs> doesn't gene wilder play the leprechaun is that is that who that was or no i honestly don't remember I think it is. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. It's Might been be. so long. Yeah, it's I just know when, it, when they did it, it was a big star-studded thing. Yeah, it was like a. It was like a. It, I mean, I just remember those movies. They they, they kind of stuck with me over time. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, and then I always wonder, like, why movies aren't like as good nowadays. It's everything's so like, I don't even know where to begin. I can't, that's a whole different conversation. But like um, what, what I wanted to ask you about was you're big with like Irish translations. I've heard, I've heard that you can translate Irish language. And um, I heard you say this in another podcast, but you really didn't get into it. And I think it would be interesting to get into. Um, you said that there were problems with 
some of the um, the the older uh, sources we have. Um, you said that the Victorian translators took liberties. Could you get into that a little bit and and uh, what your thoughts are on that? Sure, I will try not to nerd out too much because the linguistic stuff is like a, a big passion of mine. But yeah, so I do have some modern Irish, but um, what we're talking about here is the is Old and Middle Irish, um, which is it's kind of like the difference between Old English and Modern English. Um, so it's it's a similar language, but it's not the same. Um, you have to kind of learn it separately is what I'm trying to say here. And most of the mythology, most of the older stories, all that material is written originally in either Old or Middle Irish and then some early modern Irish, but mostly Old and Middle Irish. So it's like, you know, 9th century, 10th century. And some of it has not been translated at all, but some of the more popular stories that have been translated, they were translated primarily in like the 1880s, 1890s, that, that was a big popular time for translating older Irish stories and myths and stuff. And unfortunately, that was also a time period where, you know, translators, if they thought a story wasn't clear enough, they would just add material to it to, to fit what they thought it should be saying. And there's also a big problem with um, particularly Whitley Stokes, who's one of the more well-known translators. Um, he would just not translate things that he didn't think were appropriate to translate. So there's one of the most famous stories, the Kah Moitura, um, the second battle of Moitura, which is um, basically the old Irish gods um, are fighting against these beings called the Fomorians who are kind of oppressing them. And there's a whole backstory to that, but it's, it's sort of one of the bigger mythological stories. And there's a part in it, which is um, a bit graphic, I guess you would say, um, to ha having to do with one of the two of the Danon gods, um, basically hooking up with this Fomorian princess. And it's actually a hilarious scene. It's really funny. Um, it's very body. There's a lot that's going on with it, but Stokes refused to translate it. He actually has a note in his version of the translation that effectively says, like, this is not appropriate <laughs> for people to be reading. It is inappropriate material. So he just completely skips it. And that's not an uncommon thing <laughs> in that that generation of translators. If they just felt something wasn't, you know, appropriate for their Victorian audience, they just wouldn't do it. And so that what that gives us then is these stories where we think we're getting the entire story and we're not, we're only getting these sections that were, you know, approved during the Victorian era. And it, it leaves out, you know, some important information and just some really good story. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, and, and what, what I was getting to with this is uh, the talk of like the gods, like who the Irish gods were, because um, I've talked to Freddie Silva. I've had him on my show. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's like a, he's like a, like an esoteric researcher, but he's written kind of books on like who he thought the Anunnaki were. I don't know if you, you studied like the, the Sumerian literature and stuff about the Anunnaki, like supposedly those are the Sumerian gods. Then they go to Egypt and then you follow the, the pantheons. Like the Greeks have a similar pantheon to the Sumerians. And then the Romans have a similar pantheon to the Greeks. Like, and it just seemed like to trickle down, but like, I think there was once a time where the gods walked with men. Okay. Now I was wondering like who these Irish gods were. Okay. Here was another interesting thing. What Freddie did was he tracked these gods. Like what he thinks is he thinks they were like a worldwide brotherhood or brother sisterhood, whatever you want to call it. Like who kind of came to the earth and maybe established things before the flood, then helped humanity after the flood. And he's even traced them to places like Armenia, Ukraine, Scotland, um, what was interesting is is some of the megaliths that he traced to Scotland. So I was wondering, do you think there might be some comparison to these Irish gods, or do you think they might be a separate entities? I mean, I think that there's a very complicated conversation in there. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different theories about uh, about all of that. Really, you know, the the straight academic explanation would be, you know, that all of these cultures originally came from one origin culture, 
the, the Proto-Indo-Europeans who became the Indo-Europeans, who then kind of branched into all of, basically all of what we would consider like from Europe down into um, more or less the Mediterranean and some parts of the Middle East, um, which is why we have these similarities. But, you know, from the more, I guess, esoteric perspective, um, we have certainly seen people argue that like they're all gods are, it's like there's one pantheon and they, they go to different cultures and different guises, you know, and sort of present different uh, faces to different groups of people, but they're all basically the same, you know, the same beings. Um, you know, my own personal view, I would tend to say that the Irish gods are probably something kind of distinct um, in themselves. Uh, Ireland, though, their mythology is sort of an interesting thing to look at because we do have it in writing back, you know, quite a ways, but we only have Christian sources. You know, the, the original pagan Irish didn't write anything down. So it wasn't until um, Christianity came in and the scribes, Christian scribes started recording things. Um, so obviously you, could, you have to kind of take that a little bit with a grain of salt. So we don't have like a creation story for Irish material. Um, we have this book, it's called the Lyrical Aaron, um, the book of the invasions of Ireland. And it basically presupposes that like Ireland has always existed. And then it talks about these different groups of people who sort of consecutively come in and try to settle there. And the first one, um, Kessar and her people, I believe there was a plague, wipes all them out. Um, and they, I, will say, I will note, since you mentioned the flood, that in the Book of Invasions, it specifies that Ireland was not covered during the flood. That when the flood happened, everything else in the world was underwater except for Ireland. Um, that's fascinating, right? I never knew that. Like that, I love that because that that means that like there were there were probably other pockets around the world that weren't covered either. Like, but it, it makes me wonder, like, what exactly was this flood? Like, it had to be something massive. And like, I don't know if it was something that the god that that a certain set of gods, like if we want to call them gods or whatever they were, sky people or. Um, whether or they, maybe they were indigenous to earth or whatever, but I don't know if it's something that the gods created that came here or if it was something that like um, was a natural disaster that happened to earth. You know what I mean? It's, it's very interesting to look at, you know? It's definitely interesting that so many different cultures have a shared story about that happening. You know, that the flood story isn't just in one place and one culture that we can kind of find it in different places so it, it does make you sort of wonder. Yeah, it makes you wonder if it like really happened, right? But um, what did what did the Irish say about their flood myth? Like, I, I mean, I'm I'm so interested to know. And like, what? Okay, like one thing that I took down. Another note I took down was that um that the I that the Irish looked at the fairies like as if they were demigods. Like, so 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 they they're not looking at the them fairies like a little person right they're looking at it as like a fairy as like a like a fully um like a humanoid or, or what what are what are they what do they what do they what do they what do they say the fairies look like and like are they demigods in their eyes yes so the couple questions in there let me let me try to answer these in the most logical order um you do have beings in ireland like the leprechauns which are like 18 inches high in the stories um, in the older stories, and these go back a thousand years, they're not the sort of fairy shoemakers we think of today. Um, they actually appear a lot more like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, quite frankly. Um, you know, there's a king, there's a queen, there's, you know, just it's a whole population of these little 18 inch tall beings um, who originally were connected actually to water. Um, but we also have these other beings that be called the Aeshi or the Thinashi, the people of the fairy hills. Um, and they are very human in appearance. They would be, you know, four or five, six feet tall. They would look fairly human, um, except that they, you know, as you mentioned with the demigod thing, they have these powers, these abilities. They also generally were seen as being extremely skilled and very knowledgeable. Um, they live much longer than humans live 
which I'm sure contributes <laughs> to the skill and the knowledge. Um, so we have these, these stories of the invasions. We have this idea that the flood never happened in Ireland, that Ireland was kind of exempt from it. And this first group, um, Kassar, and these, these women come and then they all die. And then the second group, Partholon comes, all of his people, and then they also die. Um, I can't remember how, but um, they don't survive. And then this next group comes, Nevid and his people, and they don't die, but they're sort of driven out by these these people called the Fomorians, who are sort of like connected to the ocean. Um, sea raiders is how they're described sometimes. Uh, not particularly pleasant in a lot of the stories. And they were sort of demanding these ridiculous taxes and things from, from the people of Nevin. So they leave. Um, they in turn then divide into two different groups, the, the Firbolag and the Tuatadanan. The Tuatadanan are the old Irish gods. And the Firbolag go back first to Ireland and settle. And then the Tuatadanan come back and those two groups end up fighting. There's this big war between them, which the Tuatadanan eventually win and they take over Ireland. And then they also end up having a war with the Fomorians, but eventually humans arrive, you know, the, the Gaels, the Milesians, the, the Irish people, humans. And there's another kind of big fight between the Tuatadan and the Irish gods and the humans. And basically the humans have this magic worker with them, um, Arahain, and he makes a deal with the sovereignty goddesses who are sort of in charge of who is going to be ruling in Ireland. And he makes a deal with the three of them that um, their names will always be on Ireland. Ireland actually comes from one of their names, Eru. And um, because of that, the humans end up winning and they get custody, if you will, of Ireland. But the two of the down and don't leave they just give up the surface and then they go underneath into the she into the fairy hills um, or the other world. Um, it's not literally underneath the ground. It's like another reality, another dimension. So they sort of continue and remain to be there. But because the gods, the two down and go into the fairy hills, they sort of join with the fairies. Um, a lot of the fairy kings and queens that we know in Ireland are actually the, the old gods, Tuatadanan. So we get this sort of muddle <laughs> happening with the folklore and the stories where you have some of these beings who we know were gods in the older stories. And then you have this whole range of these other beings who demigods is, is a pretty good way to understand them. Um, you know, there's a lot of respect even today for the Ishi, like you don't want to offend them. You don't want them to be upset with you because they they can really mess a person up if they want to. Um, so, you know, you'll hear stories about roads getting rerouted to leave fairy trees alone and people being very respectful of places that belong to them because you just don't want to risk them being upset and, and retaliating. Because, you know, as we just established, these are beings who, who used to be considered gods or demigods at the least. Um, and they're, they're able to really um, affect people if they choose to. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it seems like in a lot of cultures, we see like man going up against the gods. That's really prevalent, like in the Greek culture, where like Prometheus steals fire from the gods to give it to man. And then there's like, um, you know, the story of Perseus and where he has to like, you know, deal with gods or or go battle up against Medusa. She was more like a Gorgon. But I mean, still, you have, it's really prevalent in the Greek culture. Do you, do you think this is like always something that's been that there might have been these others that we've we've called gods and then humans kind of came on the scene or maybe they made us and like you know like th th that's another thing like if you look at like the Sumerian tale of the Atrahasis like that clearly says that the Anunnaki in that culture created humans right and I don't know if it was the same in the Irish but like do you think that we've always had these 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 maybe gods in our reality or something, or at least in the beginnings of humanity? I mean, from my personal opinion, I do. I think that I think that if we look across the folklore, um, Irish and you know outside of Ireland, 
it's clearly a symbiotic relationship. There, there's clearly something that humans get from having a connection to these beings, you know, whatever that might be. And there's clearly a, something that those beings get having a connection to humans. Um, you know, they're just, we're very interlocked. And I think that that's kind of always been the case. Um, you know, one of the oldest stories we have in, in Ireland, the, in the original language, is about fairies. Uh, effectively, the extra Conla is the story of a fairy woman who appears and kind of wants this king's son to go back with her, you know, to her world um, and eventually convinces him, which is sort of what the story is about. And then he leaves never to be seen again. And that is one of the oldest stories that we have. Um, they, they've dated it to the ninth century, but they think the language that's used, the story was originally probably from the seventh and that's probably based on oral stories. So this is something that goes back really, really far, you know, for the evidence that we have of this kind of thing. And I think if you look at any culture in these sorts of spirits, gods, demigods, you know, and how old all these stories are and how universal they are, like every human culture has these stories. Um, to me, it's hard to argue that there isn't something going on there. There isn't some truth in there somewhere when every culture, ha you know, around the globe has these ideas, you know, and including cultures that haven't had contact with each other like ever or in like, you know, 12,000 years or something like that. You know, if we're talking like, you know, Native American, indigenous compared to like, you know, European compared to African compared to Asian, I mean, there's just there's just just this line of similarity that goes through all of them and it's hard for me to think that there's no truth to any of it when it's so widespread yeah and obviously in mainstream ma mainstream wants us to think that it's all myth they they call it mythology but i think there's a lot more truth in myth one one of the things i wanted to ask you about i only have a couple more questions but one of the things this is such an interesting conversation so thank you by the way but one of the things I wanted to ask you about was like how far Irish history goes back, because we know the Sumerians go back 6,000 years. And then it seemed like, you know, other cultures spread beyond that. But then if you want to look at like the esoteric traditions that a lot of people will say Atlantis and Lemuria were around too, but, but they were before Sumeria. Well, if you want to look at it, it was like Atlantis, Lemuria, then maybe Kem, because it says Thoth goes to Kem and he starts Egypt and he raises the hairy barbarians or whatever. That's there's that whole story. And then but then so there's there's all that, right? But like on on that side of the world, like as far as like Europe and Ireland, like how far does the documented history go back? And is it is it much more than what we would think of as from what English history sort of say? I mean, it's a little tricky because the written material, we really don't have a lot. Um, the, the oldest written material that we still have is from, I believe, the ninth century. Um, they know from looking at it that it's, it's like copies of older stories. Um, and like I said, they can kind of estimate based on the language that's used that it probably goes back more to like the fifth century um, in writing. Uh, but we know, for example, like um, Newgrange was built, I think it was 5,000 years ago. And, you know, there's, there's ritual sites in Ireland that they can date back, you know, 2000 before common era. Um, so 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago that, you know, they have evidence that it was being used in certain ways that offerings were being made there to somebody, to something, um, you know, we just don't know the details because we don't have the written material, which is where it gets a little tricky. That's a kind of an advantage that the, the Middle Eastern stuff has, you know, Egypt and, and Sumeria and all of that, Assyria, because we do have the writing. 
Yeah, they have the cuneiform tablets. Like they have the, that's one thing. And a lot, you know, what's interesting is a lot of those cuneiform tablets haven't even been read yet. Like there's a lot that they found that they haven't even, I mean, somehow they got to like the big ones, like the Enumulish, the Atrahasis, but I can't even imagine what else is buried over there. And, and, and another, another sad thing, because I, I love that, the history of that. Well, I'm, I'm part Lebanese. I'm, I'm a big mix. I'm like Lebanese and Greek and Italian, but like, so I, I kind of like, you know, I feel like akin to like the Anunnaki story, like because I have like history over there or whatever. But like what, what I was going to say was um, uh, it, it's it's sad because like, you know, like a lot of those places in the Middle East because of religion or radical religion have been like, um, you know, like they're destroying ancient sites. Like and, and it seems like it's being done on purpose. If you want to talk about conspiracy theories, like it seems like 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 the city of Eridu, which was one of the first original cities on earth, supposedly is just like totally destroyed from like, you know, yeah, isn't that crazy that that it it seems almost like they're targeting it. You know what I mean? That's weird. It's like, it's almost like they're trying to cover up history. So we don't know our true history. If that makes any sense. It's, it's really sad. Anytime you have, super religious people of any religion who decide to use that religion to kind of destroy culture. I agree. You know, and and unfortunately I think that there's a lot of examples of that, Um, you know, but the one you're mentioning is a really good one. There's been a lot of of very old locations and, and material and we'll never know now what really could have been discovered there. Um, Cause a lot of them had not really fully been explored. You know, archeologists hadn't really gotten in there. Um, that's one thing I will say, even though what we have from Ireland is, is all Christian, um, you know, which is obviously it's gonna be coming through that lens, but the Christian scribes, especially of the old material, the oldest material were pretty good about just recording what they were recording. And they would make little side notes, which are hilarious when you read them. They would be like, you know, the the Tudadanan appeared in ships from the sky and landed on the top of the mountain and the whole island was in darkness and mist for three days. And then like in parentheses, they'll be like, but of course we know that this could not be true because, you know, Jesus. Um, but it, it makes it really clear that they were recording what people believed. And then they're just kind of covering their, their scribe but so to speak by adding a little like, Oh, but you know, Jesus. One thing I wanted to cover with you, I thought was really interesting. I follow a, a, a guy I've had him on my show. His name is Matthew LaCroix. And he, he made the point that one time that, um, that people celebrate St. Patrick's day, but he think he thinks this is just his theory that, that they, they say that that's when St. Patrick kicked the snakes out of Ireland. But he said there were no snakes in Ireland. So that could have been symbolic of St. Patrick kicking the Druids out of Ireland. Do you have any opinion on that? So it's actually a, a pretty common, um, I guess we wouldn't call it like an urban legend, modern myth. Um, the whole St. Patrick and the Snakes thing. Uh, it, it first appears in writing in 1911 in a book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, where they were interviewing someone who lived uh, in, I believe, northwestern Ireland. And he was saying like, oh, this lake where, near where he lives, Loch Derg, um, was the place where St. Patrick was supposed to have defeated the Druids. And there's another story that this was also the place where he had, you know, driven the snakes out. And so the guy thought that the snakes, you know, equaled the Druids. Um, when you actually read St. Patrick's material, both his, his confessio and then his hagiographies, his like saint biographies, um, it's, it's kind of like reading a comic book would be today. Like there's a lot of him just battling Druids straight on and um, causing earthquakes that swallow groups of Druids. And um, I think there's one story where he um, rains down fire or something like it's it really is very entertaining for what it is. He turns himself and his whole group into deer to escape um, people that are chasing him in one story. Um, It's it's just very over the top. It would be a good Marvel movie. Let me put it that way. 
Um, so in the older stories, he, he really just pretty directly was going after the Druids. Like there wasn't any metaphor or symbolism with it. Um, there are no snakes in Ireland. That's true. There haven't been since the last ice age. Um, so the miracle, the idea that he performed this miracle and drove out the snakes, it's a pretty easy way to like give him credit for a miracle that you can't disprove. <laughs> Because there aren't actually any snakes in Ireland. Um, so uh, how can you argue that he, he got rid of them? <laughs> you know? Yeah. There. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to look at the way that, you know, the story has sort of been reinterpreted now so that the snakes represent Druids and, um, you know, pagans more generally in, in sort of the, the modern understanding of it. It's fascinating. Do you think there can be some benefit to Christian mysticism? I, this is my view, entirely my opinion before anyone like pops up in the comments to yell at me. Um, I do think that like any large religious institution, there can be abuses. There are abuses clearly. And, you know, power gets misused. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But I do think Christian mysticism, like any form of mysticism, can be a very beautiful, powerful thing. Um, I think if you look at the lives of some of the saints, um, you know, the things that they describe and the visions that they had and, and sort of even sometimes their, their experiences with their lives are, are very interesting to look at and very magical, you know. Um, some of them definitely, you know, if you didn't know they were Christian and you just heard the story would sound like witchcraft. You know what I wanted to tell you what's weird is they say that, um, and I've had a woman who does like voodoo and hoodoo on my show. And she told me that in voodoo, the Orishas are the, the you know, are like actually the saints. And it's like the, that's like the equivalent. Have you ever heard that? Yep. Yep. It's um, syncretic, uh, the syncretism where, when the people were first, you know, forcibly taken in and brought over, they couldn't continue practicing their own religion. So they kind of hid it by melding it with, with Catholicism, with Christianity, with the saints, so that particular um, Loa or Orishas would instead be associated with, um, you know, like uh, St. Barbara or um, Our Lady of Charity um, so that, you know, they could continue to, to have that spiritual connection, that spiritual practice, but, you know, without sort of blatantly <laughs> continuing to do what they would not then be allowed to do anymore. Um, and I, I, again, I think that's just, it's so beautiful to me and it really speaks to the way that that sort of mysticism and that sort of spirituality continues on, like it finds a way to continue to exist um, even when people are trying to um, to stop it. Yeah. One, one, one thing I wanted, I wanted to switch up to magic since we kind of got into that a little bit. We, you know, like this is a, a couple last questions I have for you. I was thought of, I wanted to see what you thought of sigils. Like if you think they're effective, like um, I had an experience when I, when I was like really inexperienced with magic, I'm still not very experienced with magic, but like I did a sigil to try to get ahead at my workplace. And then, you know, I, I, the next day, someone was telling me there was no way this would be possible, but the next day I sold a bunch of phones and I sold, cause I was working for a phone sales company. Right. And like, so it seemed like I killed it. Right. But then the day after that, I lost my job. So it was like almost like the sigil right. backfired on me. But like, I was just thinking like for somebody that doesn't have, I don't have a lot of experience in magic, but I've always loved witchcraft. I've always had like a interest in it. You know what I mean? And I was thinking, I don't really, you know, I don't really buy materials you know what i mean because I'm, I'm not really big into spellcraft because i just don't know what i'm doing you know what i mean so i was thinking like would sigils be like an easy way to do some kind of spell work and and in a successful way too or what are your thoughts on that sure um sigil magic isn't necessarily my my main forte i do um venture into the norse sometimes so i do things like bind runes, which are very similar to sigils um, I have a friend who has written a book on sigil work, um, which is, you know, a, a pretty good book. And I do think that there's a lot of power in them. 
Um, I think like anything else, it's a little trial and error to sort of figure out what is going to work for you and what works and what doesn't. But um, I do also think that intention in that case matters a lot. Like when you're making a sigil and you want it to have a certain purpose, you're sort of programming it that way. Um, I think the, the biggest place that people usually go wrong with any kind of magic, but you know, including sigil magic, is either being too specific in what they're trying to do or being too vague. Like you have to find a nice middle ground. Um, so, you know, like for example, if you're doing something cause you need money, you don't want to just say, you know, I need, I need money because you're going to find like a dollar on the sidewalk. <laughs> and, you know, you were successful. <laughs> you found money. It's just clearly that's not going to help you. Um, but you also don't want to be too overly specific because then it makes it too difficult for it to actually happen to manifest. You know, if you're like, I need exactly $650 by five o'clock tomorrow, you know, through completely ethical means, I mean, obviously be ethical, but the, the more you tailor it and add in details, then the harder it becomes to sort of have that actually happen. So you want to kind of have a nice middle road. And I think with sigils, you see that too, where I've seen people try to do them where they're they're aiming for something that's just way too vague and way too big. Um, and then it's not going to work. Or they're, they're so specific that again, it's, it's not going to work. You kind of have to have that, that happy medium zone. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, well, I, that's all the questions I have. Oh, oh, I just wanted to ask you real quick about like fairy witchcraft. Like, like how is that different than the, than from what we might know of as like regular witchcraft or Strega witchcraft or any other form of like paganism or witch sure. Wicca? So of course there's like a million different kinds of witchcraft out there. Um, and there's different kinds of fairy witchcraft too, to be clear. Like if you look up fairy witchcraft, you're going to find some different flavors. The particular kind that I practice is based on that sort of early modern witchcraft where people were um, basically going to those sorts of spirits uh, for knowledge and um, to learn from uh, and to connect to, to also like help them with things. It's not a path I necessarily recommend for everybody because there is sort of that risk anytime you're dealing with spirits. Um, you know, you, you have to try to do it safely. Um, there's, there are safer approaches to just spirituality with witchcraft. If that's what you're interested in, um, you know, fairy witchcraft is a little more of a, um, a risk to take, but you know, if, if you feel like that risk is worthwhile, if you're interested in it, if you want to have uh, a witchcraft that's based more in connecting to spirits and working with spirits, then it can be a good option. That's interesting. And then, and then just to, just to clarify, do you feel like that we live in like a world of like entities, like teaming everywhere, like spirits, fairies, um, you know, all, all the different flavors, or do you think this will be my last question? Or do you think that like, you know, like uh, for, for example, a great duo, um, the guys from Ireland and one's from uh, England, I believe it, Barry Allen and Brian Fitzgerald, they wrote a book that they think that this phenomena is something that just kind of changes its mask in front of humanity. Or do you, would you believe that we are in a, um, a world with entities just everywhere, all different kinds. My personal approach to it is, you know, just like, you know, we look around and we might not think there's a lot of animals around us, a lot of life forms around us, but actually, you know, there's all sorts of animals we can't see. There's all sorts of insects. There's all sorts of things everywhere that we're just not aware of. I think it's the same with spirits. I think that we live in a very inspirited world um, you have all kinds of different things going on that just, you know, a lot of people can't perceive or aren't aware of, you know, fairies are certainly a part of that, um, land spirits, spirits of place, um, human ghosts, uh, all sorts of things. So, you know, my, my personal opinion on it is that yes, we, it's teeming with, with all sorts of things. 
Um, and we can probably only really perceive a fraction of what's there. Um, but that's not really that different from what we, you know, as, as embodied humans perceive about the living things around us already, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Right. It's just maybe all happen in like some other reality or something or, or another dimension or, you know, who knows, who knows, you know, I, I know this, I know I would, I'd love to see it someday. Like, I mean, like I've had, I've only had very limited paranormal experiences, you know, but I know I've had enough to know that there's other things out there, but um, something well, going on. yeah, there's definitely something going on. And you know what? The veil's thinning too, right? It seems like more people are having experiences. The more, the more I get emails every day about more people having like diff weird kind of experiences. So something's happening, but um, For sure. you know, Th thank you so much for doing this. And I thought this went great. I'm probably going to post it in a couple of days because I'm behind on posting videos. Like, That's but, amazing. um, but, uh, and I can, I'll send you a copy too, if you want, I can yeah, I'll share you. it around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. And, uh, and, uh, can you tell everybody where to find your books? Um, any other services you want to promote and thank you. Sure. Um, so you can find my books in pretty much, uh, any bookstore, particularly online retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of that fun stuff. Um, I have 43 published books. Um, that includes nonfiction. I also have an urban fantasy series and I recently had a high fantasy novel come out. So I kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, you can find me on social media under my name, Morgan Daimler, send me Facebook, Twitter, the usual suspects. Um, I am not too hard to find out there. Uh, and I do have a book on the goddess Freya that's coming out, uh, in August, the end of August. So kind of looking forward to that. Oh, if you, if you want to come back on to talk about that, we could definitely do that. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a really cool book. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that would, that would be, that would, that's, a, I, I really like your, your, the, the way you, the way you think, like you, <laughs> you, you're really interesting. You're a really interesting person. Like you, you're, uh, you. so I, I, I could probably talk to you for hours. So that, and this subject, there's so much to talk about. Sure. It really is. Right. It's so interesting. And once you like start getting into it, it's like, it's like a whole world. It like opens up and, and it, it's like worlds within worlds. Right. Cause there's like this, that, you know what I mean? Like and there's witchcraft, there's, there's entities, there's, you know, it's just so much like, and it's Players. all so much fun, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you, Morgan. It was really nice meeting you and uh, we'll have to do this again.